Well, good morning, everybody. Um, I want to start this morning by telling you a story. And I need to give a little bit of a disclaimer first before I tell the story. Um, this story is incredibly embarrassing for me. And um, at the same time, it's also super adorable. So you're going to be on like a roller coaster of emotions here. But I want to tell you the story of how I met my wife, Brittany. Uh-huh. Already getting you. Um, so I'm, I'm 31 years old. So I don't know how many of you grew up in like the sort of late 90s, early 2000s and are familiar with something called AOL Instant Messenger. Okay, thank God. Thank God I'm not the only one. Uh, or as we call the AIM. So um, I, there's not many things I can contribute to, like things that like really radically changed my life, but AOL like radically changed my life. Like I owe uh, so much to the makers of Instant Messenger. And the reason for that is I, at that time, I was like the biggest introvert on the planet. Like I didn't talk to anybody. If there's like a spectrum where like over here is extroverted, over here is introverted, I was like in, in Durham, like whatever's that direction. Like I was, I didn't talk to anybody. I had friends just because I had friends growing up. And so they just allowed me to continue to stand near them at church and stuff. And so I didn't talk to anybody, but then Instant Messenger came along, and I was like, I can talk to people without having to talk to them. And so I would go to like church and stuff and hang out with friends and just, oh, well, by hang out, I just mean like stand kind of in the group and then go home and just like get on the computer and just like go, go to town. Like I was telling jokes. I was like, I was like the coolest. Like I didn't have game in life, in real life, but like online, I had some, I had some mad game. Um, and so we had these things back then called chat rooms where a group of people would get together in a chat room and just like all talk in a group. And our youth group, it seems kind of weird now, but like our youth group at the time at church had its own like chat room. So we would all be in school. We'd go home and everyone would get on from their own home and like talk to each other. And so that was what I did every day after school. And I remember one day um, this person came in. Everyone has like a screen name. You know, it's not like your own name. It's like a screen name you made up. And if like you were cool, it was a band name or a lyric from a song, I think is pretty much what you used. And we're in there. And then this girl comes in and the screen name by the name of Chick 22 I was like, who is B-Ball Chick 22? I don't recognize her. And, um, and I want to take a pause from the story right here for one minute. Because this is a little bit of a tangent, but as a, as a staff here at New City, every week we get together to kind of collaborate on messages and talk through it with each other. And I was talking through this, and Adam, who's on staff, if you're familiar with Adam, um, he just started like busting up laughing. And I was like, it's not that funny. What are you laughing at? And he's like, I just remembered what my screen name was in middle school. So this has nothing to do with the message, but I just want to share it with you. Before I share it, though, I want to show you a picture of middle school Adam. So here's, here's middle school Adam, and his screen name at the time, <clears throat> got to prepare myself for this, was hello, with a bunch of O's, hello, ladies. <laughs> oh, oh. This, this might be an embarrassing story for me, but at least my screen name was never Hello Ladies. So, well, it has nothing to do with the story, but if I'm, if I'm going to be embarrassed today, I'm going to take everyone down with me. That's my goal today. So, so that was that. But anyways, back to the story. So, B-Ball Chick 22, we start talking, and I realized that this, it's this girl named Brittany Wheatley, who's like, she's like a hot popular girl in, in church. So, we start talking. We start talking outside of the um, chat room, and, and I am like... I just, I had so many good ideas when I was a kid. And so I came up with this idea. I was like, she's, I'm never going to have the guts to talk to her in person, but maybe I can get her to talk to me. So it might be a little concerning that I was willing to be this like manipulative as a kid, but I told her, I, I, we started talking and I started to tell her like, I don't, I don't believe you know who I am. Like we're talking on, online, but I don't think you could pick me out of a crowd. And she's like, yes, I could. Yes, I could. And I was like, all right, prove it. So the next week she came up and talked to me. And so it like, it answered all, the, all my, all my prayers. I didn't have to do anything. She came up and talked to me. 
Now, we discovered down the road that we actually knew each other from when we were younger, and my mom was her uh, Sunday school teacher. But at this time, we hadn't like put those pieces together. So we keep talking. Eventually, um, I ask her out. And I'm not like pathetic enough to ask her out online, but I'm also not brave enough to do it in person, so I asked her out over the phone. And um, she says yes, so we start dating, or like middle school dating, where like we weren't allowed to go on dates, but we would just kind of um, like go to movies as, with groups of friends and sit next to each other. And so we start doing this, and which is like, which, that's like my sweet spot, because you, you're not allowed to talk, but if you go, you're counted as like social. So I, mo- I was mo- movies all day long for me. And, so we, uh, we went and we'd be sitting in the, um, watching movies over and over, and I realized that there's this, there was something that I was so incredibly nervous to do that I didn't like foresee coming, and that's, that was to, to hold her hand. <sighs> this is where it gets embarrassing. So I, we, we'd see like movie after movie, and I'd just be like not focusing on the movie whatsoever, and the whole time in my head, just like, just do it, just do it, just hold her hand, it'll be fine, and if it's not fine, it's fine, like just do it. And just movie after movie, I just couldn't get the guts to do it. Until one day, we were seeing the original Pirates of the Caribbean, circa 2003. So we were, we were sitting there, and this, this whole movie, I'm like, okay, this is, today's the day. We're doing it. And it's like scene after scene. I'm just like, okay, now. And then I'm like, no, not now. This is a bad scene. Or like, this is a, this is a like romantic scene. She might get the wrong impression. I got to wait a little bit. And so eventually, I'm just like, I'm yelling at myself in my head. I have no concept of what's going on in the movie. And finally, I'm finally just like, okay, I'm doing it. I'm, I'm like counting down in my head. I'm like, okay, three, two, one, go! And like, I, I grab her hand, and like, it was great. And she didn't like run away, repulsed. But what happened, which I didn't foresee coming because I wasn't paying attention, is, and this is no exaggeration, this is exactly how it happened. I'm like panicking in my head, all right, let's do it. I reach out, I grab her hand. The moment I grab her hand, boom, credits roll. I was like, what? Like, I finally get the guts to do it, and I, I hold her hand at the moment that the movie ends, and then everyone gets up, so I have to let go. So now I'm the weirdo who waited until the last second to hold my girlfriend's hand, then I had to immediately let go. I'm like, man, she is just, she is done with me. It was, it was awful. Now, thankfully, she wasn't done with me. We continued to date, and we've, we've been married now for almost 10 years, and yeah, that's right. Yeah. And it only took, like, until the third year of marriage to try holding her hand again. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I, st- I still haven't done it. Um, but, but it's funny now looking back because that story sounds so like ridiculous to me. Like it was, I was holding her hand. Like who cares? What's the big deal? But at the time, it was like it was such an impossible task to me that it just it was just this thing where I was so far in my head I couldn't wrap my mind around it and I was so nervous about what would happen. And it was truly like at the time, as silly as it sounds now, it was truly like an impossible situation. And that's, that's what we're kind of dealing with today, and the question we're going to be looking at is this. It's, it's what's your impossible situation? Like, what's the thing that's going on in your life that it just seems like it's, it's, it's this hurdle that it seems like there's no way to get out of or get around? Um, maybe you're facing something, you know, in these times of COVID, something like um, financial issues or unemployment, where it's like, I feel like I'm doing everything right, but I'm still stuck right in the middle of it, or dealing with, with uh, marriage issues or addiction issues, where it's like, this thing, this thing seems like I, just, I, don't, I don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. And so what do we do when we're faced with, with impossible situations, and how can we kind of turn to God during these situations is what we're going to be looking at today. Well, if I haven't met you before, my name is Brian. I'm on staff here at New City. Uh, today we're going to be continuing our look through the book of Exodus. So we're going to be in Exodus chapter 2. If you have a Bible near you, you can feel free to get it out and turn over there with me. And uh, if, you don't own a, if you don't own a Bible at home, there's a black one in one of the seatbacks in front of you. You're welcome to take that one home. Is our gift to you today. 
Um, but this morning, we're going to be looking at a story, and it's a story that if you grew up in church, it's a very familiar story. And so what I want to do is I want to challenge you, similar to, we just finished the, the book of Jonah a few weeks ago, and Dylan said this at the beginning of the book of Jonah, and I think it applies here, to as best as possible, try and forget all of your preconceived notions about this story that we're about to read. We're about to read about the birth of Moses, and if you're familiar with this story, especially from like um, uh, Sunday school or from being a little kid, it can, I think we can kind of get the wrong idea of what's going on here. So as, as much as possible, I challenge you to try and forget your preconceived notions of what's going on here. And I'd also like to say, if you're here and you have no idea what I'm talking about, if you're like, who's Moses? What is this story that we're about to read? And I think you're actually in a better boat than a lot of us, because you can actually look at this with fresh eyes and don't have kind of these childhood stories that are clouding your view. Uh, but to give you a little recap of where we are thus far coming out of chapter one, uh, we, have, we have Israelites that are living in Egypt, and they're growing in number. So the, the population is growing, and the Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, uh, wants to do something about it. He's like, they're growing too fast. We want to make sure we control them, so we want to do something so they don't continue to grow. So he comes up with three solutions in chapter one. The first was slavery. So they uh, enslaved all the Israelites, thought it was fine, but then he saw that the population still continued to grow. So the second uh, solution he came up with was they have these, uh, the midwives. They're these Egyptian women that helped the Hebrew women deliver the children. And he told the midwives that as you're helping them deliver a baby, if you see it's a boy, I want you to kill it. So immediately things are getting like really intense here. And time goes on and he sees that the population is still continuing to grow, sees boys that are growing up. And so he brings in two of the um, kind of head midwives and asks them, what's going on? Like, I, I challenge you to do this. Why isn't it happening? And their response, I think, is kind of hilarious. They're, they're just like, well, these Hebrew women, they're just, they're just too vigorous. Like, they're just, they're just cranking out babies like a Chick-fil-A drive-thru. Like, they just, we can't keep up. We show up and, like, the baby's already, like, knows his name and doing taxes. And so that didn't work. And so the third solution that we read right at the end of chapter one is that he makes a kind of ruling or decree to throw all of the baby boys into the Nile River. Now, what's interesting about this is this, this sort of ruling didn't just go out to the Egyptian like, soldiers or army, but it went out to all of Egypt. And this wouldn't have been like today where a president kind of makes a decision and some people are for it and some people are against it. But the people then uh, would have seen Pharaoh as a god. So he would have made this decree and it would have been enforced by all of the Egyptians. So that would have been enforced by um, the, the slave owners, by just the people that were living in Egypt. And so all of a sudden, these Hebrew women that are having baby boys have to live in this state of constant fear. Because obviously they wouldn't abide by this ruling on their own. They wouldn't just, as they have a boy, just toss him in the Nile. But they have to live in constant fear that someone is going to find out that they have a boy, tear him from their arms, essentially, and kill him. See, before we even get into chapter 2, we can see that this isn't a, like a, a feel-good children's story. This isn't just like a, a nice little story that we tell our kids, but this is like a really horrific event that's going on here. And so this morning, we're going to look at a story of what one woman, what woman, what one woman did with her baby boy. And we're going to pick it up in uh, chapter 2, verse 1. And it says this, starting in verse 1. It says, Now a man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman. Now, if we, if we pause here, this, this little tidbit here is actually really important, but it's important for reasons that we're going to get into down the road. So what happens is the, the people from the tribe of Levi, the, or the Levites are who end up becoming the first uh, high priest. And Moses' brother, Aaron, actually ends up becoming the first high priest. But that's something that we'll get into later in the book of Exodus, so kind of just put a little pin in that and remember it for down the road. But we'll get back to that. Picking up in verse 2, it says, uh, The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. Now, this is a kind of a, 
I think beautiful is kind of a funny translation for this because, and like a surface reading, you can read it and be like, well, what if he was ugly? Like, what if, <laughs> you'd be like, oh, we'll try for another one. Um, but the, the, the word that they use here is better translated as healthy. So once she saw that he was healthy, that he wasn't going to die in childbirth, then she hid him for three months. And in verse three, it says, but when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with asphalt and pitch. She placed the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Then his sister stood at a distance in order to see what would happen to him. So as a baby, Moses is put into this basket and placed in the Nile River. Now, if you've ever read this story to, like, to little kids or seen kind of videos that depict it, a lot of times it can look like this really like, adorable scene, like little baby Moses, he's got his favorite little blankie, and he's put like, kind of next to this babbling brook that just kind of lulls him to sleep. But that's not what's going on here. And I, and, I, and I worry sometimes that we can kind of have that image in our head and forget the, the magnitude of what's going on here. Because the Nile, obviously, is not a place that's safe for a baby. If you think of it like this, I'm from um, Michigan, and so I'm not sure if this is as big of a thing down here as it is up there, but during the summer, we would, uh, a lot of times we'd like to spend our days going tubing in the summer. Now, tubing can mean one of two things. It can be, mean either being uh, pulled behind a boat, like a fast boat and in a tube, or it can mean what we often meant it to mean, which is you get rafts, you get an inner tube, you sit in a river, and you float. And you float until you're done floating, and then you go home. And it's just a way to chill. But the Nile is not a tubing river. The Nile is, was this huge, intense river that was clearly no place for a baby. Now, I'm a geography nerd. Like, I like to think that in a, in a different life, I would have taken all of my random facts about geography and become like a geographer, or whatever you do with it. Um, <laughs> But so I pulled out some, some facts about the Nile. So I don't know if this will be interesting to you, but it's interesting to me. So just kind of give us a picture of what we're looking at here. The Nile is the longest river on the planet, it, uh, and it empties into the Mediterranean Sea. So it's not like it's flowing into like Falls Lake. Like it empties into the Mediterranean Sea, and its output is 6.2 million pounds of water per second and 680,000 gallons of water every second. So you might think like, is that big? Like, is, it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around numbers that are that massive. Like, what is that compared to a normal river? And so I, I thought I'd show you this image to kind of um, bring to light what we're talking about here. So this is the Nile River. I'm just kidding. This is Niagara Falls. I want to see if you're paying attention. So this is a picture of Niagara Falls. Growing up, we used to go to Niagara Falls every year. It's like one of my favorite places to visit. But this is um, on the, there's two different falls. On the Canadian side, this is the Horseshoe Falls, the bigger one, the one that uh, you usually see pictures of. And flowing over Niagara Falls is 681,000 gallons of water every second. So flowing over the falls is 681,000 gallons of water every second. Flowing from the Nile into the Mediterranean is 680,000 gallons of water every second. And I know like one is obviously going over a waterfall and one's just flowing into the sea. So it's not like, it's not a perfect comparison. But I just want you to see like, this isn't a place for a baby. Like that's, that's the gist of what we're getting at here. And even if none of that was true, if you just look at the animals that are common in the Nile, then we have things like hippos. We have things like the Nile crocodile, not a regular crocodile, but a crocodile named for the Nile. So the Nile crocodile and something called a tigerfish. Now if you're like me, you're like, what in the heck is a tigerfish? So I looked it up and this is a picture of a tigerfish. Ugh. And if you, if you Google tigerfish, the first like, Google question that pops up is, do tigerfish eat people? And you know what the answer is? Sometimes. Like, and, so, and so this isn't, and, and look, like, I get, this is, these are things about the Nile now. This is a long time ago. So I'm not trying to say this is exactly what it looked like then. But I think we can agree that without even trying to be overdramatic, that this isn't a place that a baby 
would be safe in. And even if none of that was true, even if this was just a little tubing river that was perfectly calm, at the end of the day, it's still a baby. Like, we, we have a, um, a son, his name's Theo, he's going to turn one in a couple weeks, but he loves to swim. He loves to go in the water, he loves to splash around, and we have, a, we have a raft that we kind of put him in when we go to the pool. But you know what he likes to do if he's not being held in the water? He likes to do this. <laughs> like, he likes to just <laughs> shove his face in the water, because... It's just fun. And so regardless of what the river looked like, this is a baby that was alone in the water. So this is an insanely dangerous situation. But the point is that mother, um, Moses' mother didn't place him in the Nile because it was safe for him. But she put him there that though it, it potentially meant almost certain death, being put in that situation was safer than being home under her protection. Now, can you imagine for a moment being in Moses' mother's shoes and trying to make that decision? I, I, I try to think of a way to illustrate this, but nothing could really capture the magnitude of what we were talking about. Having to decide that your baby is safer afloat in a river without you than being home where you can see him 24-7. Now, as we're, as we're reading this story, the Hebrew word that they used to, that's used to describe this basket is a word, um, teba, T-E-B-A-H. And what's interesting is that word is only used one other time in the Bible, and it's used uh, to describe the ark, Noah's ark. And so what we're going to see here is that Moses is essentially another Noah. A little spoiler alert, but uh, he, he will end up being delivered from this watery threat that he's in. And just like Noah, it uh, will result in a new beginning for God's people. So the original readers would have read this and immediately known that this was a story of deliverance and a, and a story of hope, even though it's in the midst of a really intense situation. And that's the first point that we're going to get to this morning. It's this. It's that God will deliver that this is a story of deliverance, and at the end of the day, God will deliver. See, Moses is faced with a, with a truly impossible situation. Like, as a baby, there's no possible way for him to control his outcome in this situation. But what we're about to see is that God will deliver. God will deliver Moses from his impossible situation, just like God will deliver you from yours. And as we keep reading, we're going to see what that deliverance can look like. So if we pick up in chapter, uh, I'm sorry, in uh, verse 5, it says this. It says, Pharaoh's daughter went down to bathe in the Nile while her, servant girl, uh, while her servant girls walked along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds, sent her slave girl, took it, opened it, and saw him, the child, and there, and there he was, a little boy, crying. She felt sorry for him and said, this is one of the Hebrew boys. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, should I go and call a Hebrew woman who is nursing to nurse the boy for you? Go, Pharaoh's uh, daughter told her. So the girl went and called the boy's mother, then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse him for me and I will pay your wages. So the woman took the boy and nursed him. So here's Moses' mother, probably thought she would never see her son again. Now all of a sudden reunited for, with her baby for a time. And, and Moses is obviously the main point of this story, the main uh, focus of the story. But I think we can take a second and try and imagine everything that Moses' mother went through in dealing with everything that's going on. See, she... Some of this is, obviously, some of this is reading a little bit into the text. Not all this is laid out, but I, prior to this, she was pregnant. And I don't think there's any, any way to point to the fact that she didn't want a boy. But you have to imagine throughout her entire pregnancy, she was nervous. She was nervous. What's going to happen if I have a boy? What's gonna, what am I going to do? How am I going to protect him? And then she has a child. She sees it's a boy. And she immediately has to, can't, she can't spend much time being joyful. She immediately has to go into protection mode. Immediately has to go into panic mode and has to worry who's going to, if anyone's going to find out she has a boy, what's going to happen. And then she has to make the decision that, she, that it's better for her to put his life at risk than to keep him at home. And then after all this, 
She ends up being reunited with him even just for a short time. I can't even begin to wrap my head around what Moses' mother went through in this short of time. And we'll see what happens next as we close out this section if we just look at verse 10. It says, When the child grew older, she uh, brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Moses is a, is a Hebrew name meaning drawn out. Now, it can be easy for us to look at the story and think, well, thank God. Thank God he was rescued. Like, it's, it's a happy ending. He was in danger. Now he's not. He's going to be uh, raised by Pharaoh's daughter, so we're good. And while, while that, that's true, and thank God he was rescued, if we look at this from Moses' mother's point of view, especially if I try and put myself in her shoes, not necessarily what she was thinking, but if I were to think about what I would be thinking in her shoes, yeah, thank God he was rescued, but why couldn't God have done something else here? Like, why couldn't God have intervened before all this? Why couldn't God have stopped Pharaoh from making this decree altogether? Or why couldn't God have orchestrated a way that my son could live with me and grow up with me and I'd be the one to raise him? See, what we see here is that God will deliver, but that deliverance may not look the way we want it to. What we see is that deliverance may not look the way that we want. It may not be in our timing. It may not be what we would picture as deliverance. And so it's easy to think, where is, where is God when I'm dealing with these impossible situations that we talked about? You know, if you're, if you're dealing with something like financial issues or unemployment, you can, it can be easy to think, I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to do. Like, I have no control over this pandemic. Why am, I'm doing the things I think I'm supposed to do, but nothing seems to be changing. Where are you, God? Or my, my marriage might be falling apart, or I might be dealing with an addiction issue, and it can be easy to think, I'm doing the things I think I'm supposed to be doing. Like, I, I, am, I am doing the things, that, the textbook things to fix my situation, but nothing seems to be changing. Where are you, God? So we can wonder where God is while not realizing that deliverance from our situation may already be in motion, but it just might not look the way that we want deliverance to look like. And the reason for that echoes a point that Dylan made last week in his message. Last week, we saw that doubt is normal when we can't see the full picture. And what we see here today when wondering why deliverance doesn't always look the way we want, the reason for that is because God sees the full picture. Because God sees the full picture. As we read stories like Moses, we have the benefits of reading ahead. You know, we can skip a few pages, see that Moses lives, kind of see the results of it. And we have the benefit of seeing the full picture as we look back in time. But when you're living it, it doesn't always feel like God has control. We can be so focused on our situation and the way things are today that we can't see the plan that God has already put into place and see how he's using our situation. And, and what we'll see as we go throughout the book of Exodus is that God continues to deliver his people from impossible situation after impossible situation after impossible situation. But that that deliverance isn't always the way that we would assume deliverance would look like. That he has a bigger plan, that he can see the full picture, but that when, they, when they're getting delivered, they're not always appreciative. And it may not be in the way that we would assume that God would deliver them. So I asked at the beginning of the message, what's your impossible situation? What's the situation that you feel like there's no way out of? And regardless of if you came up with an answer to that for yourself or not, there, there is one situation that we're all facing that I think uh, we have to address, that there's a situation that is, by definition, literally impossible for us to get out of. And what that is is that's sin and death apart from God. That is, a, that is a situation that we're all stuck in, regardless of who you are, that left to our own devices, there is literally no way for us to get out of. And so when we're looking at this um, impossible situation and we're kind of figuring out what to do about it, I think it's helpful 
it'd be helpful if we defined what sin is. Because I think a lot of times in church, we can just talk about sin. We can talk about things, and we can get this, this thing in our mind that it's like a list of right things versus a list of wrong things. And especially if you're new to the faith, it's, it can be hard to kind of wrap our head around, like, what does that even mean? Does that just mean like being a good person? And so there, there's a lot of different kind of definitions of sin, but I think this is the most basic and all-encompassing definition, and that's this. is that sin is anything that displeases God. Think about that. Anything that displeases God, that, that means any action, any thought, any emotion, any word, or the lack of any action, thought, emotion, word. And the, the point of this is that it's, it's so all-encompassing, it's hard to even wrap your mind around. It's hard to even wrap your mind around how overwhelming the concept of sin is. And the reason it's so overwhelming is because sin is in our nature. It's not something that's learned. Sin is in our nature. See, the point is that sin isn't some checklist of things. If we flip to the back of the Bible, it's not like there's a, there's a cheat sheet or, or a, a list of just do these things, don't do these things, and then you're good. But sin is in our nature, and it's something that we're born with. See, this is, by definition, a truly impossible situation. This is, like, this is like as if we are Moses as a baby up against something as massive as the Nile that we have no power to overcome on our own, that there's nothing we can do on our own to overcome the situation. If we look uh, over in the, in the book of Romans, these verses will be on the screen, uh, we can see what Paul says about sin and how all-encompassing it is. It says this in Romans. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So this situation isn't just reserved for some of us. This is a situation we've all found ourselves in that we are completely powerless to get out of. I think one of the reasons for that is we can become so desensitized to our own sin. And what I mean by that is, is, is think about this. So without any um, exaggeration, without any, any, I tried to put together these numbers in my head a little bit earlier this week. And if I'm, if I'm counting right, I think between my wife and I, we've owned 17 cars, okay? Oh, over our entire lives. I used to buy and sell cars more when I was younger. And all of those 17 cars, all except for the two we have now, without exaggeration, I have either completely blown out the speakers in or damaged them so far that you don't want to ride in my car. And the reason for that is I like music to be so loud that it's semi, like just a, just a tad below painful. And I don't know why. That's just the way I, I, I've been since I was younger. I just, I like music, and I'll be honest, the music I like is loud and screams and sounds angry. So, like, it's, it's loud music, and it's in your face, and I just, I like it. Like, that's, that's the kind of music I like. But if you were to, if I'm driving alone in my car, I don't do this to other people in the car because I'm a respectful human being, but if, I'm, if you were to be transported into my car as I'm driving alone, you would uh, jump right into my passenger seat, and you'd immediately think, like, what are you doing? Like, are you insane? It, sound, it sounds like I'm going to be killed by music. And like, and, but I've been in it so long, it just seems normal. And, and the reason for that is that when I was younger, I didn't just, first time I got a car, get in there and just crank it as high as it can go. I started listening to music, and then over time, I'd want it a little bit louder, so I'd turn it a little bit louder. And that wasn't good enough, and so over time, I'd turn it a little bit louder, and a little bit louder, and a little bit louder, to where now, as an outsider, you may look at it and say, that's crazy, but to me, it's like, it's just normal. This is how you listen to music. And that can be how we look at sin. We can, we, oftentimes, we don't jump into a sin issue or situation just headfirst, and, and we're just entrenching it from the get-go. But oftentimes, we dip our toes in, and it gets comfortable, and we turn it up a little bit more. We turn it up a little bit more, and we turn it up a little bit more. And you may have seen this in other people where 
you can see from an outsider's perspective, it's like, dude, there is a huge issue that, why aren't you addressing this? Like, it is clear that there is an issue in your life. But when you're in the middle of it, it just seems normal. It just seems this is the way things are. And that's the way that we can look at sin. So if we read in Romans that we're all sinners, as we did, what does that mean for me? What does that even mean? So I'm a sinner. What's next? If we look a few chapters in Romans, we see the result of that sin. And it says this. It says, for the wages of sin is death. Well, great. So the wages of sin is death. So what, is that? What's, what comes next? And then it says, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, Paul is telling us in Romans that sin is not simply something we can overcome on our own. It's not a thing where you just need to work harder to get past it. But sin is truly an impossible situation that we're born into, that we can't do anything about, but there is a way to overcome it. There is a way to overcome it. And that's our, that's our main point for today, and that's this. It's that your situation doesn't change your standing. Your situation, the, the, the impossible situation you're in, doesn't change your standing before the Lord. See, regardless of how much you think you've, you've sinned or how, much, how screwed up you think you are or how far you think you're, you're deep in an issue and can't figure out a way out of, the point here is that God loves you, that he views you as a son or a daughter, that he wants you to be with him. And if you put your faith and trust in him, that your situation doesn't change your standing before him. See, this can be such an easy thing to say, but such a hard thing to grasp when it comes to yourself. And it, it reminds me of the first um, time that we met our son. So our son is about to turn one. He's adopted. And um, we weren't in the room when he was born, but we met him about four hours later. So you can, you can go ahead and put that picture up. Um, this is, that's the, the I, I may tear up saying this, sorry. That's the moment he was wheeled into our room and the first time we met him. And it's crazy because we, if, if, you, if you know anything about our story, we had, we had just found out that he even existed and that he was coming into our life about three weeks before this moment. And so at this point, we knew nothing about him. I, I, I didn't know him. We had just picked a name, um, barely knew anything about his past, didn't, didn't know anything about him. But the moment we saw him, we instantly fell in love, like instantly. He didn't have to do anything. He was screaming. It's not like he was super calm. He, it's... We just immediately, the moment we saw him, we fell in love with him. And every night since then, every night when we put him to bed, I tell him how much I love him. I tell him how much uh, my wife, Brittany, loves him. I tell him how much God loves him. But when I tell him that last part, when I tell him how much God loves him, there's no caveat there. There's no God loves you because you do this. There's no God loves you, but he'd love you more if you, did, if you had a better day tomorrow. Or there's, no, there's not even a God will love you if you decide to follow him one day. It's just that God loves you, period. End of story. See, the funny thing is, it's so easy for me to tell Theo that. It's so easy. Like, I don't even have to think about it. That's just, it, I just know it to be a fact, a fact of life. That's just the way things are. I don't even have to think about it. But when it comes to me, it's not that easy. It's not that easy knowing everything that I've done, knowing my past, knowing everything that goes through my head. It's not so easy to think that, man, God loves you. And not just you as in God loves everybody, but you as in me, as in God loves Brian Androsian, the way I am, period, with no qualifying factor. See, I wonder how many of you feel the same way, that you know this concept of God loves the world, or Jesus loves everybody, or Jesus died for everybody, but it's so easy to remove yourself from that everybody sentence. 
to think God loves everybody. But when I think about the things I did, do I, do I still qualify? So I want to read one more verse this morning. And just like the, just like the story we read today, it's a very common verse. Um, you may have heard it before. You may have memorized it. But I think we can, because it's a common verse, we can so quickly just read it, brush it off, move on, and not even think about what it's saying. And it'll be up on the screen. It's John 3, 16 and 17. And it says this. It says, For God loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son. I want to pause there. Because that's, that, there is some magnitude there that I think we overlook. Now, this, this might not be the right thing to say from stage. I don't know. But there is no one on this planet I love more than my son other than my wife. Like, there is nobody that I love more than the two of them. And there is, there is nobody I would sacrifice his life for. Period. Not my closest friend. Like, there, there is nobody I would, I would give his life for. But God gave his son, his only son, to die, knowing he would die, not just for people that love him, not just for those who follow him, but for people that hate him, for people that he knew would never uh, acknowledge his existence, that would never follow him. It wasn't just for his followers, it was for the people that he knew would spend their lives hating him and spend their lives apart from him. If we continue to read in uh, John 3.16, it says this, as as we close out that section, it says, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save the world through him. See, Jesus didn't come into this world to look at you and then look at your past and then make a judgment call on if he would save you or not. He didn't come, he, but he came to look you right in the eye. Not as in like, as if I'm addressing this entire room and saying this all applies to you. It's as if he is sitting in a chair that's directly him and then you right across from each other, looking you right in the eye saying, hey, I know everything you did. I know where you are. I know what you're going to do. There's no surprises here. And regardless of all that, I love you. You're my son. You're my daughter. And there's nothing you can do to change how much I love you. See, I think it's so easy for us to miss the magnitude of what's going on here. It's so easy for us to read things like this in the Bible and detach it from reality and just think God loves everybody, but forget the fact that everybody includes you. And not just includes you, but everyone is especially you. So your situation doesn't change your standing before God. And the reason for that is because he loves you. Not just everybody, but if you look in the mirror and use your own name, say God loves blank. He loves you because of who you are. He knows your name, knows you by name, and he loves you. Your situation doesn't change your standing before God. Would you pray with me this morning?